you've got another episode coming your way. As always, it's got big energy and it's about tourism. You guessed it, another episode of Big Tourism on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Hosted by the biggest tourism nerd around, yours truly, Erica Sears. So on this show, I love diving deep on the issues of destination management and tourism management with local experts. I always learn a lot about, first of all, the experience of the person themselves, but also just the challenges and um, assets that each destination has. Um, However, today is going to look a little different. This year has looked a little different. This holiday season has looked a little different. So I know you all can hang, and here we go. Speaking of different, Emma Sloan. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, I am joined today by Emma Sloan, a health policy planner with Eagle County Government in Colorado, who is committed to health equity through the decolonization, reconciliation, and indigenization of our land use, economic food, and social systems. What her LinkedIn doesn't tell you is she's a compassionate listener, dedicated storyteller, a rather unwilling scuba sales representative, and a hell of a good friend and travel companion. Welcome to the show, Emma. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. (laughs) Did you like the comment about being different? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So this year has been a rough one. Would you agree? Or are you living in a different universe? It has been a rough one. It has been been a little tough at times. It's (laughs) It's not Christmas in paradise. It's not. So I thought for our own sake and for the sake of our listeners who weren't able to take that holiday vacation abroad or need to imagine a warm place abroad that you and I would take them back to prettier times in our ASPN space machine. So how does that sound? Sounds great. Let's go. Let's Let's get out of here. Where should we head? Do you want to go to the, the riveting classrooms of our alma mater in Eugene, Oregon? No, thanks. (laughs) what about the uh maybe the mediterranean island of majorca spain sounds appealing but it's a little too salty for me there a little too salty well maybe we should go to a place where we were once kind of like castaways where after a few days of only seeing each other we wondered if the other one would vote us off the island (laughs) (laughs) or maybe we would find a secret hidden immunity idol Da, 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 da. Do our listeners know where we're going? <laughs> yes, okay. So, although many Survivor fans may know Palau from season 10 of the reality TV show, this island nation has a long and complicated history with the U.S. So, before we even dive into this episode where we're going to cover our incredible trip in 2019, almost exactly a year ago... Um, to the incredible and pristine Palau, we're going to do a quick, brief overview of its history. So, Emma, you've always got the facts and the story. Would you mind giving a little history of Palau? Sure. Um, Palau has a long and storied history, um, of which Erica and I are not qualified to give to you. So, (laughs) we are pulling this from the pristine Palau webpage, which is just the tourism webpage for Palau. So here we say, Palau's early history is largely veiled in mystery. Why, how, or when people arrived on our beautiful islands is unknown, but studies indicate that today's Palauans are distant relatives of the 
Malays of Indonesia, not sure if I said that right, apologies if I didn't, Melanesians of New Guinea and Polynesians. As for the date of their arrival, carbon dating of artifacts for the oldest known village sites on the rock islands, which are the islands that make up the nation of Palau, and the spectacular terraces place civilization here as early as 3,500 BC. Perfect. And then, yeah, should I keep going or would you like to take it away? No, yeah, please take it away. So then we come to the 19th century, late 19th century, so fast forward thousands of years. The possession of the islands was claimed by Britain, Spain, and Imperial Germany. So pretty on brand for those nations. And then eventually by 1899, the Palau Islands were under German control until the end of World War I. So unfortunately, Palau has a lot of history of the two world wars. um, And we can talk a little bit about that. But again, not qualified really to give that history. But after World War I, Japan was given control of the islands until 1913. And Japan was asked by the you know, early United Nations to not develop the islands, to not militarize it, but really just bring it up um, to kind of Western standards of education and industrialization. Instead, Japan went ahead and militarized um, the islands by building the largest airfield in the Pacific Theater. So that really places Palau as like a um, very useful landmark um, for militarization. And then at that point, Palauans and Peleluans, um, which are um, groups from the neighboring island, were actually made slaves by the Japanese. Um, And I was lucky enough to talk to a descendant whose family had experienced that slavery. um, And he was an amazing Um, tour guide, but the Japanese presence made Palau a major target for allied forces in World War II. Um, It all culminated in the Battle of Peleliu, which is known as the bitterest battle of the war for the Marines because because so many people died. Yeah, so definitely a complicated history. You have this, this, this island nation, which is now so valued for its natural resources as a tourism destination, but had previously and actually continues to be a really strategic, strategically located place. So as you can tell, a lot of different countries have had a presence there, including the United States. Um, Something that I think is interesting is that a lot of times I feel like the way that history is taught in American classrooms is it's like, this is something that happened in the past. Um, We put it up on the shelf and every now and then we dust it off just to like reflect or look back on what happened in the past. However, Although it seems like that wasn't really far in the past, and although it feels like Palau is really far away, the history of Palau is actually really still connected to the United States. And in fact, is even really connected to Emma's family and my own family. So Emma, did you want to talk a little bit about your uncle and his time over there? Yeah. And I'll just say too, like, for me, at least as an American, like, World War II feels very far in the future, even though it was, you know, less than 100 years ago. But I think for folks on Palau, and I can't speak for all of them, but I think that history feels more present to them because they felt the effects of it while it was unfolding, right? So they had a lot of economic recovery that needed to happen, you know, really a shift in their government, and then really working with all these other nations who had a vested interest in Palau. Um, 
and that still goes on today. So when I told my grandfather that we were going to be traveling to Palau, he was really excited because his older brother, my great uncle, fought in the Battle of Peleliu, um, which we said was one of the largest battles in the Pacific theater. And it was a three-month battle um, between the Allied forces and the Japanese. So it kind of was special for my grandfather that I was going to be going there for very different reasons than my ancestor. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, too, how, you know, that your uncle can go there and be fighting and not realize that in a couple generations, his great niece would be going there for vacation. You know, I think that just really talks about how complex it was. And Emma and I really did want to set this episode up in a way to to really honor the fact that a lot of, you know, negative history, a lot of wars and battles happened there. And then we had the privilege of going there as tourists. Yeah. Um, Yes. So Emma's great uncle was there. Interestingly enough, my dad was also there. So during some of the construction, reconstruction and building, um, my dad is a retired U.S. Navy CB. He was in the construction battalion. So his job was to build roads and bridges and airfields. Um, So when I was growing up, I remember my dad talking about Palau, talking about the incredible diving. He was there as a young man. He was there for just a little less than a year. Um, and in all of his free time, he went diving with fish and fins, which is, we'll talk about that, but Emma and I dealt with them as well. Um, also in our house, we always had the storyboard that he that he brought back from Palau. It's um, a pretty traditional thing to buy when you're in Palau. It's carved out of wood and tells sometimes a humorous story, a historic more story. Um, but anyways, we had that for so long. And ever since I came back from Palau, like I feel like that has just had a different meaning for me. And I just understand a little bit more of its value. Um, and then interestingly, Emma, over the Christmas holiday, uh, my family, we were hanging out and we were playing this story game. Um, and so you have all these different questions that lead different stories. And one of the questions was, where is the best place that you've ever seen a sunset? And my dad was like, Palau. Oh yeah. Palau had the most incredible sunsets. And I was like, I have to agree. Like I have the same answer. And um, Emma, you know, we have those incredible pictures on my GoPro, but the sunsets in Palau were so amazing. And I don't, we were trying to, my dad and I were trying to explain to people like why they were so incredible. And I feel like for me and where we were located, which we'll talk about in a second, it was like the ocean just goes on forever. And I yeah. think because it was so shallow, what was it like about a, a mile between us and the reef? Mm-hmm. I think because it was so shallow, like the sunset would, ref- the water would reflect the color of the sunset and the, ch- the colors would change. So it'd be like a light lavender and then red and then blue. And sometimes we were swimming. It was like we were swimming in a, in a sunset. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I just remember that evening we were like, had been in the water for like three hours and the mm-hmm. sun started to set and we we're like, okay, we're not going anywhere. Just going to watch this beautiful thing unfold. And it changes from minute to minute. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's like so incredible. Like just, I think for our listeners out there that are in their homes right now that are maybe taking a break from work, like just imagine the experience of, of swimming in a sunset, of even swimming in a sunset that you see from your own home mm-hmm. and just how magical that was. So with that setting the scene, we're going to dive in. So again, I, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned this is a little bit different um, and it is different because we do not have a local plowin on the show to talk to us or a destination expert from the country. This is just Emma and I, as we mentioned, two outsiders, two outcasts, if you will, um, talking about our personal experience traveling there. But of course, 
I always have my destination management lenses on. So I will sprinkle in some of my my humble destination management, tourism management um, opinion here. So let's talk about the trip. Let's let's just start from the beginning. Um, what let's talk about what it was like planning for a trip like this. Um, what do you think of when you think of our planning experience? Well, I do want to mention that we had a close friend who had experience living on Palau. We didn't mention her, but she had done a fellowship and um, studied and lived with a Palauan family. So she was a huge guide for us in just kind of knowing what to expect. Um, knowing what not to expect, things like that. So we did have that support going in. Um, and thank you to that friend for that support. Yes. And for the invitations while she was there, I think yeah. that is important to add that even maybe we grew up with the story of our great uncle or our dad being there, but her actually being there and just like that, like that invitation out there, like come to Palau. So yeah. it has, it has been in the stars for Emma and us and I to go there Definitely. and we wish our friend would have been there at the same time. Yeah. So I think we started planning for this trip like maybe six months out Mm -hmm. or like before that. I know we made our first booking like in July planning to go in December and that was really exciting. It was exciting. And this is one of the first, this is the only trip that I've ever planned for like this. (laughs) (laughs) That's because I was there and I require a lot of planning <laughs> Emma likes to know what's going on. I'm like, I don't know, maybe we'll go in two weeks. I'll probably figure it out. But I feel like Palau is a destination because it's so far away. You do have to plan it out ahead of time. And we were apparently going there. So Emma and I were there at the end of December last year. That is apparently like one of the busiest times to be there. And so I think you remember when we were looking for a place to stay, it was like booked, booked, yeah. booked, booked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're like, are we going to find anywhere to stay on this island. Um, and we also had a kind of a difficult time finding an eco-friendly place to stay. Do you remember yes. that? Yeah. I remember like looking for hotels was really difficult because um, it felt like every time we looked, the hotels would change. Like there are a significant amount of hotels. It's very westernized, so it's expensive. And I think they're catering to a group that maybe isn't young American women. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I agree with that. Um, we did though, we found a place, we found a home, um, <laughs> an eco-friendly hotel, kind of more of a natural looking resort um, that was on the opposite side of the island. MA Eco Beach Bungalows is where we ended up making our home. Um, yeah. We made it. Yeah, um, <laughs> a super comfortable place to stay. I mean, incredibly clean. It really did feel like home. Each of the little bungalows that you could rent had a, um, you know, smaller kitchen with like a fridge and a microwave, um, places to sit outside, and then air conditioning, which was super nice at night. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Um, and what is nice about having a kitchen is that Palau is an expensive place to travel to yes. and to be at. Um, obviously, it's it's an island, so a lot of the food is imported. So even going out to restaurants, buying your own food is fairly expensive. So for anybody trying to go to Palau on a budget, would definitely recommend getting some kind of mini kitchen in whatever you are staying. Um, but yeah, we got there. It was a long trip, wasn't it? It was a long haul. 
yeah, it was a crazy trip. So I think we can, you know, like travel back to that night where we arrived on the island in the dark and then had our Google, well, it wasn't even Google Maps. It was whatever app that you use. Yes, it's called Maps.me for anybody out there. I So I used that before we all had like Google Maps and like international phone plans, but you can download um, the map of any city, almost any city in the world, and then use it offline, but it still tells you where you are on the map. So I used that when I was in Shanghai the year before. Um, Anyways, I definitely recommend it, especially when some places don't allow Google. But yes, so I had the Maps.me fired up and ready. (laughs) And we were just traversing from island to island on these like beautifully maintained roads like way better roads than you see in a lot of parts of the U.S. and a lot of it is over water um yeah yeah. so it was dark it was dark I would say it was kind of like it was a little bit trippy too because the roads and all the signs are like American Like it looks exactly like an American road. Obviously we talked about the American presence and even the Navy CVs that still have a little bit of a presence there. Um, So it's, it's funky because you feel like you're at home, but you're driving on the other side of the car, but on the, still on the right side of the road. (laughs) The cars are imported from Southeast Asia, Mm -hmm. but the roads are built with, you know, Western influence in mind. So just, you know, a meeting of cultures of practices driving it's it was beautiful being the being the good friend I am I was automatically like okay Emma's driving (laughs) (laughs) and um just for a visual like it really can test your friendship I think that a lot of people go to plow for their honeymoons I suggest going there with a best friend and just sort of like putting your friendship on the test you'll hear a lot of examples of how I did this during the trip but what's interesting is when you are the passenger you are riding on the center line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels like you're just flying. And if you're friends, like, I don't know, Emma is an aggressive driver. It it does feel a little bit like a roller coaster. So, um, but before we got in our car, so you fly into Plow and I, ha- I can't not talk about this, like just from a destination management perspective, Palau is the star child. Like Palau is what every destination, what every country should strive to be when it comes to managing the amount of visitors and the type of visitors coming to your country. So Palau is the first nation on earth to change its immigration laws for the cause of environmental protection. Um, When you enter Palau, when you go through customs, um, you need to sign a passport pledge to act in an ecologically and culturally responsible way on the island for the sake of Palau's children and future generations of Palauans. Um, To accompany the pledge is an incredible video that was created with Palauan children. We are going to listen to um, just a short audio, just a short piece of it, and I definitely recommend that you watch it at home. One day, a giant came to visit our home. He stomped on our reefs, gobbled up our precious animals, took fruit from our gardens, even stuffed his pockets with turtle shells. But we found 
found out that he didn't need to hurt us. He just didn't know his own strength. Okay, so as you can tell, it's like very well written, very poetic. Um, the whole time it's talking about these kids are trying to train a monster how to behave appropriately on the island. And they recognize right in the beginning of the episode of the of the video, like we know the monster is not doing this on purpose, but he's like destroying our island. And so they walk him through this and they're essentially saying like, please take care of Palau now so that we have it when we grow up. People, we are the monster. <laughs> the visitors are the monster. Um, so you have to watch the video before you enter Palau. We actually watched it, you know, a lot of times it's called the in-flight video. We didn't watch it on the airplane though, Emma, right? We watched it inside, like when we're entering immigration. I remember that- watching it on the plane. Okay. Yeah, it was exactly. after like 36 hours of travel, if not longer. Yeah. We saw it at some point between the plane and the car rental place. Yes. Maybe even twice. Beautiful. I yeah. was really stoked about it. I think other people were interested. Like they were watching it, but nobody was as excited as I was. <laughs> <laughs> because I, people that listen to the show know that I'm always talking about how we message, how we message to visitors to bring better behaviors to change negative visitor behaviors and they nailed it nobody will ever do a better video than plow i'll say it right there right now (laughs) like it is incredible so please watch it um what were your thoughts on the plow pledge i thought it was beautifully animated i mean it does you know real use real shots of the islands of plow and um like you said the youth of plow but then the animation of this ignorant monster that comes in and litters and, you know, steps on coral reefs and breaks them was really, really cool. And I also would say that it's amazing that they've created this video that I think aims to speak to people from a number of different countries and cultures and different, you know, environmental values and cultural values. Um, And I'm just like, really proud of Palau for speaking up for themselves and speaking up for the things that they care about and being clear about that to visitors. And it's interesting too, when you say that, like, I think the message does kind of transcend different cultures. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there's like a culture that like hates its own children. I don't think there is. And so the fact that they use children because it's not like an adult to adult, like, Hey man, like don't throw your trash in my front yard. It's like, Hey, like you're doing this for these kids so they can have a future here and future generations. So again, it is flawless. Please watch it. Um, yeah. So Emma and I go through, we sign the pledge. So we have a very cool stamp in each of our passports and then you sign it right there in Mm -hmm. front of them. Um, and then we were on our way. I'm on the center line. We're flying across the Island. So a point about this is most people stay in Karor. That's where you're flying in. Mm-hmm. That's where all of the dive resorts are. So that is the main city. That's where a lot of people stay. <clears throat> Somehow we ended up on the other side of the island. I think neither Emma nor I are like super like big city people. Like we love to like be out in nature. So we showed up at our resort. Um, I think it could be called a resort. And we were the only people there. Right? Yep. Yes. <laughs> um, so it was interesting because we were going into this thinking this is the busiest time of year. It's going to be super packed. And uh, seriously, we're the only people there. We showed up at nighttime. Um, one of the the employees of the resort came out, gave us the keys to our room, and boom, Em and I were alone. And for almost the majority of our trip, we were the only people there. 
<laughs> Even like yeah. on the beach. Yeah. We were definitely the only overnight guests there for, I think we stayed there for, do we stay there for six nights, six or seven? Yeah. Um, um, we had some guests or I guess the, you know, resort had guests come for the day because the beach that it's located on is really beautiful. It's just miles long and it's really great for swimming because it never gets too deep. And I don't think there's really many strong currents that come in there. So I think it's a popular beach for day use. Yeah. But really, yeah, only three groups, I think I remember coming to that resort. The whole time. Mm -hmm. And I think too, something about Palau is that, so if you were to not be a guest at that resort, if you were just a day use, like you have to pay a fee. So there are like the beaches in Palau, a lot of them are private and it's only for the guests or you have to pay. Um, So that is kind of interesting perspective on, you know, like private ownership and of course all these coastal destinations around the United States, it's mixed, you know, like on the Oregon coast, it's free and public to everyone. But of course there's other states that also have privatized beaches. Um, There was something really special about our beach though. Something Mm -hmm. very, very special. It is where Survivor was shot. So just... (laughs) (laughs) Um, Survivor was shot at... To clarify, it is where the... um, Oh shoot, what do they call it? Where they all sequester and vote people off the island. Yeah. It's where those scenes are shot. But Erica, if you watch season 10 of Survivor, you will know. <laughs> I know, I need to. That <laughs> Survivor is shot all over like the 50 whatever rock islands of Palau. And yes. the contestants are like traversing these waterways every day to get to their different challenges and like, you know, finding these caves that the Japanese military used in World War II to create shelter. Like, it, it's like kind of inappropriate. Yeah, <laughs> it's like kind of really problematic. Like we're making a show out of sort of something that like people were truly trying to survive. So yeah. um, we'll leave you all to, to chew on that for a minute. But um, so, yes, it is a popular beach. And when we walked down this beach, we met the man that kind of manages sort of the part of the beach where part of the show took place um, because we don't have his contact info or we haven't been able to reconnect with him. I mean, we're not going to use his real name, but because he was our neighbor, we're going to call him Mr. Roger, Mr. Rogers, Roger or Rogers, Rogers, Rogers. Okay. So Mr. Rogers, he was an interesting guy. Do you remember how he greeted us? I remember passing him on our, you know, way down the beach. And then we stopped to talk with him on our way back. Right. And he was raking the sand he was raking the sand and was kind of one of those, like, hey, hey. And then a he was like, wonderful cultural pastime. Yeah. And he was like, <laughs> he says, no, on the lines of like, hey, California, right? <laughs> like, oh, like, <laughs> just like identified us. Oh. And so it's interesting. It's like interesting. So I think when you're in a different country, sometimes people are either like, are you from like Texas, New York, or California? So, you know, if the guy was like, whoa, Oregon, I would have, it would have blown my mind. But, I appreciate that out of sort of the hotspot destinations on the continental U.S. that he said California, because if he was like, oh, Texas, I'd be like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) what about me screams Texas? But the thing is, you and I are from the West Coast, so um, kudos. We are both Californians. Yes, we were both born in California, so he identified that he had also lived in California, as we came to know. So Mm -hmm. we talked to him probably for, what do you think, like at least an hour? Oh, at least. 
at least. Um, and so our conversation ranged greatly and I found my, my travel journal, which, um, I think people can appreciate that for the entire time we were there, I have two journal entries, each are a page. <laughs> um, luckily, he made it on the one page because it was such an interesting conversation. So here were a few things that I noted. Um, again, this is a year ago, so it's like I can't remember exactly you know, our exact conversation, but we're here, here were some interesting notes. So one, um, he spent a lot of time talking about his family. He was obviously really connected with his family. And I think family is an important cultural thing in Palau. Um, and he mentioned that his brother had passed away. And the way that he had told us that he passed away was he said that um, his brother is singing, singing in the ocean. Um, I just love that. I thought that was such a beautiful, poetic way of saying like, you know, your, your brother or someone in your life has passed away. Do you remember him saying that? I remember him saying that, and I just think that's so special because in Western culture, we're always like, oh, he's in heaven now, which is like kind of, you know, an other place. Like, mm-hmm. we don't know what heaven looks like, whatever. But um, to say he's singing in the sea, like, Palauans are so connected to the ocean. And the fact that they think they're, their loved ones that have passed just go to the sea, I think is so beautiful and speaks to the connection that they have. Yeah. Um, with these coastlines. Yeah, I thought it was cool. And, you know, I think all of us that live on coastlines or next to oceans can kind of identify with like how that sort of that, that beauty and that idea of like, mm-hmm. like that is kind of heaven for a lot of us that live on the, on the coast is, mm-hmm. is being in the water. So um, that was an interesting note that I took from him. And then another one on a totally different topic, because obviously we talked about a lot, um, was he had mentioned, so again, we were there at the end of 2019. This is before COVID was a thing for us in the United States, before it was really this huge global pandemic. Um, and he was concerned about elections, the mm-hmm. U.S. elections, because specifically depending on who gets elected, he was concerned about budget cuts in 2020, 2020 that would affect Plow. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that was a good reminder for us too. It's something that we don't talk a lot about in the United States is like all, when you have a presence and we have territories and interesting, intricate, complicated histories around the world, I had no, I just, it didn't even cross my mind that we were funding or providing any kind of funding to Plow. Although when you're there, it's pretty obvious. There's a lot of like, um, you, you know, extension offices, USDA agriculture, like national park service, national park service. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting if you look at the Island times Palau, which is one of the plow and news and current events, you can see its website. Um, one of the, <clears throat> one of the headlines is us pandemic unemployment assistance to continue. So it's just interesting looking at how, um, you know, Mr. Rogers, was was already kind of foreseeing like elections and how it would affect his budget and how um, decisions made in mainland, mainland US affect you know Palau isn't an outlying territory but we do provide significant funding i think as you know a way to support the or, you know, come back from the damage that we had a hand in, you know, back Mm -hmm. in the 1940s and how Palauans do not have um, rights to vote in the U.S. or affect any of those major policies. I think we need to remember that as Americans, that 
our voting decisions affect people in different countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was an interesting point. And I think we had a lot of conversations like that in Palau where we were like, yeah, hello. Obviously, like, this is something we need to think about. Um, I have a whole list of other things he talked about. The last one I'll mention is that he had talked about the diminishing sense of community in Palau and the rise of individualism. So mm-hmm. that's, I feel like that is a heartbreaking thing to hear, but it's also not surprising, especially with the influence of capitalism. Um, a lot of the products that are imported from the United States, there were Kirkland products there. There there was jerky there from Tillamook, Oregon, which is where I live in Tillamook County. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I remember we spent some time talking about that as well. The grocery store was wild. It was like every the brand you've ever was seen in the United States all in one like small grocery store. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that seeing this, like the food from like my hometown, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like there's the jerky. Um, yeah. And then also a lot of the clothing, remember, was like Roxy, Billabong, which makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it is like an ocean kind of area. But um, so, yeah, that was kind of our time on that side of the island. It was very relaxed. It was meeting interesting people like him and um, really being on our own. Mm-hmm. Emma and I are still friends after all that time <laughs> together. So really compatible travel <laughs> companions. Um, we did travel almost every day back to Karor, which was, what would you say, 45 minutes to an hour? Yeah, I think it was a hard 40. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. And you could, it was basically, you could drive in a circle. <laughs> so we would like, which way do you think is faster going on this way or this way? Um, that's when you have some time on your hands when you're talking <laughs> about that kind of thing. Um, so let's talk about some of our adventures. You know, you can't really talk about Palau with, without talking about scuba diving. Yeah. Palau is like one of the top destinations in the world for going scuba diving, which is one of the main reasons that we went there. Um, We had the opportunity to dive with the company Fish and Fins, which has been there for a really long time. As I mentioned, my dad had actually dived with that company. Um, It was different owners at the time. Um, I think now the owners are, I want to say they were German owners now. Yes. I want to say they were German expats. It was a mom and her son that ran it um mm-hmm. with a lot of like really great help from local palauans mm-hmm. and i just want to say i got dive certified in colorado in order to dive on this trip which is not an easy thing to do i had to dive in like a um hot spring in the middle of Utah in order to become certified in the middle of the United States. So (laughs) don't recommend that. I think a lot of your listeners are people on the coast, so you won't have that problem. But everyone that I talked to while getting certified was like, so where are you going on your first trip? And I was like, well, I'm going to go to Palau. And they were like, oh my God, like, it's just going to ruin diving for you. (laughs) Like, why are you going to Palau first? Like, it's seen as like the mecca of diving, like the creme de la creme of the mm-hmm. diving world. And they were like, seriously, go to Hawaii first and then go to Palau. Like people had been waiting their whole diving careers to make like that huge trip to Palau. It, it's, it's a huge slog, you know, to get there. Um, um, but let's not forget, let's not forget that there was a time when I lived in Mallorca, Spain, also a wonderful diving 
destination. I worked for a scuba company. I became a dive instructor through that company and spent months, six days a week working there. Emma joined me in Mallorca for several months. (laughs) She (laughs) ended up also working for said dive company um, as a scuba salesman. (laughs) (laughs) During that time, Emma refused to become certified. I could have certified her myself. It would have been for free. And it is in like very crystal clear, calm waters. Uh, Crystal clear, I feel like is a bit of a stretch for the Balearic Sea. It is is incredible visibility. Obviously, obviously you haven't been diving. Anyways, we're getting there. The point is, Emma could have. She refused to, and then she had to go dive in a hot spring and melt her hair. (laughs) In order to go diving, because I insisted, I was like, it will not make sense for you to get certified in Palau. Like, please get certified before you go, because like that way we can just dive right into the first dive. So... Speaking of which, this is one of my favorite stories about our time in Palau was our first dive. So when people go on their first dive, I've seen a lot of people do their first open water dive. Um, It it can be a little daunting. Uh, You're going, you know, you're in open water. There's wildlife. You're getting off of a boat. Um, Luckily, Emma is a confident swimmer, swimmer. So we're going out on the boat. Basically what you do is you get in these kind of speed boats and most dive sites, I think are 45 minutes to an hour away from Karor Mm -hmm. on the dive boat. And Emma and I are talking, I haven't dove maybe a year. Um, Emma's like, you know, getting amped up for her first open water dive. And so we're talking and she's like, okay, they know that I'm an open water beginner diver. Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. They must know because you know, like you give in your, your information before we start. I'm like, they always, you know, they always know you're a beginner and you're with me. So it'll be good to go. They stop the boat at our first dive site, which was blue corner. It's <laughs> just like, yeah, one of, I th- I'm pretty sure the first one was blue corner. Now that I say that I'm unsure, but that first day we definitely did blue corner. So we pull up, I'm like, no worries. And the guy just without missing a beat was one of the guides. And he turns around and he's like, all right, what are you going to do? This is what we're going to do today. We're going to go into the water backwards, drop down to about 75 feet. Uh, We are going to see the sharks off of the reef. We're going to go around the corner. We might see the alligators hunting, and then we'll wrap it up with some stingrays. (laughs) So they're like, he's like, you're going to clip on to the reef, and we're going to hang out there for a couple minutes. And we're like, I think we were both kind of like, oh, reef clip, did you say? And I had like, when I, you know, when I was getting certified, they were telling me in Colorado that I needed a reef clip. Is that what they're called, Erica? Yeah. Yeah. That's, but neither of us had one with us Mm -hmm. and we had to like borrow them last, like literally our goggles are already on. We're about to get in. We're like, okay, we actually need a reef clip. We don't have one. And And luckily they had some extras. And fortunately, they gave us a quick briefing, which did not help my semi you have never done that before either, right? I hadn't done it before. And, you know, when you're doing something new, especially when you feel you're doing it high stakes underwater, um, it feels a little bit stressful. But especially when they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not a big deal. What you'll do is – so for everybody out there who hasn't heard of reef diving, I'll give you the briefing the way they gave us the briefing. <laughs> <laughs> 
we we are going to dive so we can see the sharks. And a lot of times the sharks are hunting right off of the reef, which is generally, it looks like a drop off. It's also where there's really strong current. So it'd be very difficult to stop moving and just be a perfect buoyancy to watch the sharks. So what we do is we quickly go over, deflate your BCD, sort of your life jacket. Uh, you're going to deflate, put your hook on dead coral, important note, dead coral, not living coral. Yeah. Then you'll put a little air in your BCD. That way there's tension on it. And they're like, then you'll stop, make sure you're not moving your hands, not moving your feet. And then the sharks will come around us. Really hard to do. Really hard to not move your hands and feet. And it just felt like the logistics. I was like, I hope I'm understanding these logistics correctly in my head. You know, now that it's over, I can tell you this. There were a number of dive boats at the surface. And at the surface, you're just in open water. So there's really no landmarks to look at. I was thinking if, if, if Emma panics or if she messes up her reef thing and she loses control of her buoyancy and shoots the top, <laughs> that's problematic you one. Are responsible. Secondly, I think I will have to go with her because I'm worried. But then when we get to the top, there are so many boats that I don't know how we'll find ours. And I don't have, and I don't have like an inflatable marker. So I don't know how we're not going to get ran over. Anyways, let's go in. A-okay. <laughs> um, so yes, Emma is a trooper and a good friend. And that's how I treat my friends. I make them um, go swim with sharks with me. But we didn't see any alligators. We did see a lot of sharks. And I would say it was a really awesome experience. How did it was you feel? Awesome. They were smaller sharks, which I was kind of thankful for just because this was my first time in the open sea. Um, but it was just such a beautiful experience. The sharks got really close to us. Like really they, close. They did. And I, th- I think what was cool is, you know, when you're at the surface, if you're surfing or swimming or free diving, like when you're splashing a lot, it feels a lot scarier if you're thinking about sharks and when you're actually scuba diving because you're immersed, it feels like you're part of the landscape of the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. So they're moving around you. It's like the, there's no sound. There's just like bubbles. Sometimes you can hear the crunching. I think it's the parrotfish crunching on the rocks. <laughs> you can hear yourself breathing. It's like such a peaceful, calm moment. Um, and yeah, there were a ton of reef sharks. I, I would say that in some of the GoPro videos, you can hear me laughing. <laughs> And I am laughing because you can't see us right now, but Emma has very expressive eyes, which I could see through the mask. And the way that you got hooked is you had your dive master or your dive instructor. We had a dive master. He's from Palau. He was our age and he had gone to high school in Alaska. Very interesting guy. Oh, he was great. I really liked him. He was awesome. He like, I think really took a shine to us. Like he was like these two lost American girls. Yeah. So we go down, you're in a group of 10. And what they do is like, as I mentioned, the current is so strong, you kind of need to hook. And I, as as a former, you know, dive master myself, like I can imagine like the management of a group like this, you need to hook everybody down quickly so that people don't get spread out. So it's not like he has time to be like, oh, these two are best friends. Let's hook them together. He's just like grabbing your hooks, hooking and going down the line. The way that it ended up being our setup is imagine you're like at the, at the edge of a cliff, in our case, we're at the edge of the reef looking at the sharks. I have been hooked and this very strong German man has been hooked next to me and the way that the current is, we are slammed together shoulder to shoulder, both of our GoPros out, both of us super happy, giving each other mm-hmm. the okay. Emma, unfortunately for her, <laughs> hilariously for me, has been hooked a little bit in front of me and to the left. She looks like sh- like shark bait. Yep. <laughs> and then the rest of our group is in a line behind me. And then other groups are in multiple lines behind me. So front row seats, baby. 
<laughs> here we are. And then the current, the way that the sharks are hunting, are swinging the sharks around to Emma's face. And then they gently swim out in front of me. So it's just like this motion of like, just like the current slamming them in front of Emma, coming in front of me, me looking at Emma's eyes. And then the dive master, I know he was cracking up too. We were really cracking up, but. Baby's first dive. Baby's first dive. Here's the sharks. Um, But there was a really magical moment on one of our dives with a turtle. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So we were diving along a cliff face, I think, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the technical term is. Beautiful yeah. dive. There were a lot of turtles out that day. And I was just kind of tailing behind Erica. And we see a turtle come out of the blue. Like and literally come out of the blue. Like looking down, obviously, like the deeper water gets, the darker the blue gets. Mm-hmm. I see I see it coming straight up out of the blue. I think we've been taught to not be afraid of turtles. <laughs> They're not the scariest of sea creatures. But this turtle took a liking to me and really just swam really as close to me as it could get without pawing me. Not that turtles have paws, thinning me. Um, Like we were eye to eye, face to face for a couple of seconds before I like was able to float myself away a little bit. But Beautiful experience with this sea turtle. And I got it all on my GoPro. It is such a cool video. I've been showing so many people. Again, you can hear me cracking up because, first of all, I selfishly think that the turtle is coming to me, you know. Yeah, it just bypassed Erica and it swam right up to me. Swims up to Emma. You watch it level up to her eyes. You Mm -hmm. see Emma start trying to back up because she's not sure why she's making eye contact with a sea turtle. or Why am I being targeted? (laughs) what is it about her um so yeah that was just a few of the amazing dive stories I'll just say one more briefly is that on one of our last dives there was and I'm not joking a solar eclipse yes (laughs) yep um we have seen the solar eclipse in Oregon it happened a couple years ago so it was my second solar eclipse it happened while we were on the boat that was the day I think that we yeah, we had seen amazing sharks. That was like a really good shark dive. We there saw were, dolphins that day. Yes, we saw dolphins diving behind our boat. There were rainbows and a solar eclipse. So Yeah, so we went under. The solar eclipse was just beginning. And we went down and we did a dive. And then we came up and it was at peak. So you mm-hmm. could kind of tell like the difference in light um, while we were underwater, which wasn't really something, I, a subtlety I expected to notice. But then when we came up, it was like full eclipse, so very dim, like everything's in sepia tone, and it was so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we can thank you, Fish and Fins, for organizing that, (laughs) for organizing the solar eclipse. They had the glasses ready. Fish and Fins for just creating really thoughtful experiences every single day. Like I, I don't obviously have a lot of experience diving, but it felt like every experience was curated to the people that were on the boat that day and nothing was about like just getting it done. It was always like, we're going to, you know, take an extra 15 minutes to have lunch at this really special cove. And like, we're going to take you on a hiking tour after lunch to see these special things. Like I just felt like these people really appreciated where they were and they really loved showing it to people. It was never like, you know, They never played it fast and loose. 
Yeah, it was awesome. It was very thoughtful. And I think like from everybody at the other staff is, you know, especially like we had the dive master that we talked about. There was also um, the captain of our boat was a plowing man and he was so kind, remember? And he would always like come back and talk to you and I and I like just make sure our trip was going well, want us to know where we were staying, if you could, you know, like just was super kind, really interested. He was the captain Um, of the boat. This mm -hmm. was not his responsibility, but he would always come over to Erica and I and inspect our gear. Mm-hmm. before we went under like tighten different areas you know check our air things like that I felt that is something that, that is something that a captain normally does do on a dive boat but I felt like it was extra attention um yeah he was great the whole the whole trip was amazing so stepping back a little bit into my destination management realm um, something that I did think about while I was in Palau was the the distribution of visitors on the island. Um, as Emma and I mentioned, we spent some time on the on the other side of the island. There was nobody at our resort. We also went and saw um, the waterfalls on that side. We saw the stone monoliths. We went and saw a Japanese World War II lighthouse, and we were the only people there for the most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. When it comes to the distribution of visitors, it is something that, you know, and at some point I would love to do, like just dive really deep into Palau's visitor management with somebody from there. But it'd be interesting to look at, like, how can we get some of those visitors? How can we get some of that their, their dollar um, to the other parts of the island? Because when you're diving, sometimes there's like up to 14 boats around one site. So mm-hmm. obviously people are coming for diving. People are visiting the restaurants they're staying at. Um Palau Pacific Resorts, I think PPR, is like a really popular resort there, which we spent the last few nights at. Um, so from that management lens, I was like, wow, this is really incredible. Like, it'd be great to break up some dives by going on a hike to these waterfalls, by seeing these really incredible monoliths, by, you know, visiting this lighthouse. Like, there are beautiful views and sceneries on the other side of the islands, but it felt like a lot of the a lot of the activity and people were really centered around Karor. Um also, and I wonder if they do that purposefully, you know, like, I wonder if they do concentrate it in certain areas because they know that they can manage, like, say, the Jellyfish Lake I know is really, mm-hmm. like, a popular site. And I think sometimes they do cut off visitation to Jellyfish Lake if the water, you know, chemistry changes too much or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they kind of protect those other areas. Also, I will say that we we could have been better about our carbon footprint while on the island, I mean, we we didn't really know that we were staying so far away from where we would need to go to get food and um, mm-hmm. be around other humans. Um, so yeah. I think no, it's a, it's a good point it for sure. throughout the island may also increase the carbon footprint of Palau. Yeah, that's something that we've talked about in tourism on the Oregon coast too, is like, what do you want to do? Distribute visitors so that these highly visited areas are less impacted or just have them going to those areas where you can manage it really well and have bathroom facilities where you can have messaging, where you can have support staff from like mm-hmm. county, from state parks. Um, that is a good conversation. It's a question I'll have to bank for when I can interview somebody from Palau that wants to to jump into to some destination management with me. So um, did you want to, did you ha- have anything you wanted to add about our trip to the waterfalls, stone monoliths? Um, they were pretty brief visits, but any takeaways from any of those? Um, the stone monoliths were like 
spiritual in a way. Like it was such a quiet area. So when we say monoliths, I think you can think of something in between like Stonehenge and then the um, sculptures. They're not sculptures, but at Easter Island, Mm -hmm. some of these monoliths did have like what looked like faces carved into them. The history behind them is kind of unclear, but they've been there for a long time. But yeah, we were the only folks there. Um, There were some... There was like one information board, but really that's it. So you're you're just kind of left up to interpretation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the waterfalls were super beautiful. It was a pretty well-maintained path and boardwalk that was initially built by the United States National Park Service. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting enough. Yeah. Yeah. um, Something else I just wanted to know, you know, as we're saying, like we were the only two there, we were the only two there. But um, what do you remember about the different nationalities, the different types of visitors that were in Palau in general? Because I feel like we were, there were not a lot of Americans and there certainly were not a lot of people our age as visitors. I would say this is like a, definitely like a scuba dive demographic, like people maybe in their forties or above, um, couples for Mm -hmm. sure. We got a lot of looks for being two young women together especially Definitely. to American women, um, a lot of, un, you know, not unwarranted attention, but people were constantly looking at us. Um, what nationalities do you remember visiting with or kind of being around? So what I remember on the plane, um, there were a couple of, I want to say Eastern European um, folks. We were trying to get a look at their passports. In retrospect, we could have just asked them where they were from. Um and then Southeast Asians and um, a significant number of Japanese. Um, mm-hmm. The resort that we stayed in at the end of our trip, Palau Pacific Resort, fondly known as PPR, um, I think really catered to Japanese tourists. But yeah. the first Americans that we came across were on our second dive day with Fish and Fins, oh, a yeah. really lovely young couple from Minnesota. Um, really, really lovely people. And then in and they're not older, but, you know, a retired couple um, from San Luis Obispo, California, which is where I went to college. So, like, really small world, but those were the only two American groups that we encountered. And it's, it's interesting because I was looking as we're talking about the history, right? We talked about um, the presence of Japanese, of Japan in Palau. We talked mm-hmm. about the presence Germany talked about the presence of the United States. So I remember there being a lot of German visitors. You mentioned there was a lot of Japanese visitors. So I think that's like one of those things, like when it comes to tourism, this is something that we're talking about a lot on the coast, on the Oregon coast, is when we talk about even sometimes racism um, or history that we have to recognize even as visitors that like our 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 brothers and sisters, you know, compatriot, <laughs> oh my gosh, what am I saying? Our, you know, fellow Americans or Germans or whatever you are have also been here, but in a totally different context in the past. And just recognizing that as you're a visitor in a place, like if the majority of people there were German, Japanese, and American, it's like, we're here now as visitors, but we used to occupy this land. So yeah, I thought about that a lot when I was touring (laughs) Peleliu, where that big battle occurred, because on my tour group, it was like three groups of Americans, two groups of Germans, and then two folks from Japan. And yeah. I was just kind of like, wow, look how far we've come in 60 years that here we're like visiting this place where we interacted in a very, very different way. 
Totally. Um, so uh, a few other things that I wanted to bring up here, again, going back to destination management that I thought you would think is interesting as well. This is something that I looked at, you know, after we were on the trip, I wish I would have seen this before, but Palau has this document called the Palau Responsible Tourism Framework, and it is a plan and a vision for tourism um, for Palau from 2017 to 2021. So I believe that they are entering their last year of this plan. It's really well thought out. Of course, it complements the Palau Pledge that we talked about. It complements the the movie that we saw in flight. Um, So a couple of things I wanted to point out and just see kind of what you thought is um, and again, I just briefed this document, but um, the forward is done by the Minister of Natural Resources, Environment, and Tourism. Like, hmm. what do you think about that one person, but those three things, natural resources, environment, and tourism? How unique is that? It's very unique. Yeah. I want to say that the natural resource part of that is very Western to see, like, what other cultures see as, like, kin, you know, like other living beings as part of your family, part of like your, your what's necessary for you to have health and well-being to be seen mm-hmm. as like resources. So I don't feel like that's very Palau of them, but I think it's very interesting to have one position that intersects all three of those things. Yeah. I, I mean, I read that. I, the first thing I thought is, wow, that is a big job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it makes sense. As we were saying earlier, you know, essentially a lot of times tourism really is an extractive industry. People are going, especially now people are traveling to places for the outdoor rec for the natural resources. So of course there's always people that are traveling to maybe like Las Vegas or Disneyland to see like that kind of man-made attraction. But a lot of times, like especially Palau, people are going there to see the ocean. People are going there to be a part of the pristine environment that they have. So it totally makes sense for like those different kind of things those things are so separated, at least in Oregon, um, to be really combined together in Palau. Um, Palau has many examples of being like a very like eco first kind of destination. Um, actually, while Emma and I were there, they passed a law on sunscreen to save corals. Like that happened in 2020. Cool. Um, and so basically that was like, nobody can sell a certain type of sunscreen that has like a chemical that da- that would bleach the coral. Um, and if someone, a visitor is caught using that sunscreen, they get fined like a, a significant amount of money. So when I was looking at the, um, when I was looking at an article talking about it, here's a quote. It says, when science tells us that a practice is damaging to coral reefs, to the fish, fish population, or to the ocean itself, our people take note and our visitors do too. And that was said by Palau president, Tommy Remigasau Jr., um, the harmful effects of chemical sunscreen are well documented by scientists around the world, and that includes our local experts. How refreshing is it to hear that? It's beautiful. <laughs> like what they be- they believe in science, and I think for our listeners out there that work on you know marine reserves or coral reefs or more of the natural environment, like just imagine how refreshing if like your government said, "Okay, we see that this is damaging our environment, so we're going to pass a law to not do that." Yeah. Like not only do they believe in science, but they act upon it. Right. So um, there are a number like plastic bands. There's all kinds of stuff that Plow is always doing. And they are just like such a leader in that. Um, Going back to this document, um, obviously we don't have time to go through all of it, but um, 
here are some things that I, so they have some key targets. Um, and here's an interesting target that I wanted to read to you because I have never thought about measuring destination management or even like over visitation in this way. So target two, Palau's visitor economy is responsibly managed. Visitor to resident ratio reflects sustainable carrying capacity. Oh, I love that. So visitor to resident ratio. So I so when we look back at our time there, do you feel like you saw more visitors than locals? Do you feel like you saw more locals than visitors? What was your, um, what, what did that ratio, what do you remember that ratio kind of being? Um, that's a really tough question because we spent so little time like in the villages. I think we drove through a couple. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was pretty even though, I suppose. I felt like we saw, so... I, in my, in my humble opinion here, but I felt like it was pretty, um, like more locals and we were also there during Christmas. Mm -hmm. So if you remember when we went to, um, uh, I can't remember the name. There was a mall in Karor, like people were getting Christmas presents, getting their Christmas presents wrapped. Um, I felt like there were a lot of locals there and the place that we saw all visitors was at Palau Pacific Resort, PPR, and at some of those restaurants nearby. Like that was like all visitors at those locations. But anyways, I thought that was a very interesting metric. Um, when you think about where you live, Emma, um, you know, when you live in Vail, Colorado, Mm -hmm. um, here on the Oregon coast, I was like, wow, what an interesting way (laughs) to think about that. Like visitor to resident ratio. Um, interesting. Then another one, let me scroll down. Target number four, Palau's visitor experience is the living brand. The complete visitor experience reflects the pristine paradise Palau brand. Um, how do you feel like that? How do you feel like we saw that brand? Does that sound accurate? Pristine paradise Palau. Mm -hmm. I feel like we definitely saw that. I mean, There was, you know, times where there was trash on the beaches, but I don't feel like that's a reflection of Palau. I think that's a, just a reflection of how we've treated our South Pacific seas for yeah. decades. Um, there wasn't yeah. like an abundance of waste in where we ate or even at the resorts we stayed. Yeah, I think I I agree. I was thinking about it myself like – um, and it's like so fun too, because Emma is not a tourism like professional. So these are, these were questions you probably don't get a lot, but, um, so like the complete visitor experience, I was thinking about it. Like before we went, when you look at Palau and you look at like the images and videos about Palau, it is really pristine looking. Mm-hmm. And that's of course something that's kind of easy to do with marketing, right? Like you could entice people in and you could be like, well, we're so perfect. And then you could get there and you could have a totally opposite experience. So you'd be like, well, this is not, ex- this is not at all what I thought it would be, but we got there and it like, it was like exactly, you know, when you look at pictures of a destination, a lot of times there's like no humans in the picture. <laughs> it's like just beaches yeah. and ocean. And then you get there and it's actually like very crowded. Like that truly was our experience. It did feel pristine. It felt like we were the only people there. So I feel like they were doing a good job on target five or target four. Um, there's six targets in total. The last one, which we can't really say um, whether or how that's going, but something worth mentioning is that target six is Palau's tourism development is community driven. Mm. Communities are actively engaged in responsible tourism planning and decision making. I just wanted to say, like, that is 
so huge and so important. Um, and I would love to see, again, talk with somebody and, and see how that's going and what that looks like, um, how those like kind of maybe town halls went or community conversations. And if they're gearing up now, if they have one year left of this plan, then maybe they're um, forming a new plan now. So that was some of the, some of, so from a destination management standpoint, uh, Palau is like, is so awesome. Yeah, <laughs> 10 out of 10. Really thoughtful. Yeah. Very thoughtful, like just amazing, like marketing, but amazing experience in general. Um, it's something any any tourism professional out there should definitely like look at some of the measurements Palau is using and some of the planning and, and marketing materials that they have. I definitely recommend that. Um, I guess as we just wrap up here on some personal reflections, um, what are some reflections you had after this trip? I just... I felt so cared for by all the Palauans we met, Um, you know, from speaking to some of the professionals that we were able to meet with at the Bureau of Aging um, to the lovely, I think they were, you know, originally from the Philippines, but had made a home in Palau. The women who took care of us at M&A Beach Bungalows were really wonderful. Um, And then the gentleman at Palau Pacific Resort took just such good care of us and were very attentive, knew our names, um, all those things. And yeah, I just, they're so proud of the place they live and they're so happy to share it with other people who appreciate the natural environment and want to experience it and take care of it. So really lovely people. I I agree. Like, I think, you know, when you look at like the true meaning of hospitality, um, yeah, the Palau people definitely nailed it. And I think that, you know, even like we were saying earlier, like our that the neighbor we had um, at our first resort, like the fact that you could walk by somebody and then like have that deep, that level of a conversation with a, yeah. with a complete stranger, I think that really does show something about someone's culture. Like imagine like wherever you are right now, sweet listeners, <laughs> if someone walked by your house, would you be like, hey, you know, do you think like that would be a conversation you would have? Like, I think it really depends on the culture and where you live. So, um, yeah, I same, you know, amazing. There were some really great products there. Uh, Red Rooster beer. Cheers. That was delicious yep. and cold. Um, that is a beer that is made there in Palau. I wish um, that it was here because it's so good. Their it cider, was good. so good. Yep. I'm glad we got to try that out. Um, and then also Pura Vida Palau sunscreen. So that is made in in Palau. It is a safe sunscreen that you can use. Em and I both purchased one um, and loved it. it. Smells great. It's natural. And the owner, the um, creator of that, is a young woman. I read a story about her a couple months ago. I think she, I mean she's like under 20 years old. Like absolutely incredible product that she has. So it's just the people, the products, the experience there were really fantastic. And Emma, thank you for joining me on on this podcast, but also on that trip and for diving with me with sharks and for driving our car. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, for making that experience so wonderful. Yeah, let's go back and interview a Palauan. Yeah, let's do it. Stay tuned, um, listeners. And Emma, I will try to try to put together a Palau podcast, which really dives into the destination management and strategic thinking behind that. But 
Thank you all uh, for joining Emma and I on another episode of Big Tourism on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.